0: Amen. If you turn in your Bible to uh, Mark chapter 5. It's Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea... The country of the Jerezines, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived, among the, he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned it in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid." And everyone marveled. Well, have you ever been in a situation where you felt like the world was almost conspiring against you? Like every step that you took, there was opposition to meet you? Well, I remember uh, I was taking a class in seminary and I kind of felt like I was experiencing that. Was, I was working on this paper and I was told that this teacher was a really hard grader. Uh, told it was a really difficult class. And so I'm trying to complete this paper, and I don't really understand exactly how to do it. I never completed a paper exactly like this before. And I realized you had to know this Bible software program to be able to complete the paper well. And so I had to learn how to do this Bible software program. And so I, I worked really hard on it. I just felt like I was meeting all these obstacles. And then I finally get a draft of it done, and give it. I gave it to a couple of friends to review, and they gave it back to me, and so I was kind of just kind of sitting on it, reviewing it, reading it over, and then it was a Monday, I believe, and uh, I was supposed to uh, go home, because it was the end of the semester, go on a plane to go home. I think I was leaving at like 12 or something, and so I, thought, I printed it out, and I go to the professor's office, and he had a box outside the door. I take it and I put it in the, in the box, and then I walk away. But as I'm walking away, I think to myself, I should just double-check just to make sure, you know, just one last time that everything was printed out correctly. So I go back to the box, pick up the paper, you know, just kind of look through it, and then I realize that there was a page or two missing at the end. It's like, oh, great. So I go back to my dorm room, and I try to print it out, and all of a sudden the printer went haywire, It just started shooting out papers. I don't know exactly what happened, but I was kind of frantic about it, and I was just kind of grabbing things, and I ended up breaking the breaking the printer, so it would, you know, definitely wouldn't work anymore. So I thought, okay, I'll go to the computer lab. So I go to the computer lab and you know put it on a disk, put it in the computer. And then I go to print it out, and I look, and the Greek font is all messed up. Like, the whole formatting is all messed up. Apparently, I had some kind of Greek font in my computer that wasn't at the computer lab. So I go, great. I'll go to the library. Try the library. I go to the library. Same thing. I just kept meeting opposition after opposition. Finally, I was able to print it and uh, send it in the next day. But it just felt like everything was working against me. And I wonder if that's kind of what Jesus' disciples felt like. Now Jesus and His disciples are in a boat. They're headed to the Decapolis, to the Gerasenes. A big storm comes up. A storm comes up that's so great that the water is coming into the boat. It's crashing against the boat. They fear for their life. And Jesus stills the storm. And then they arrive, and it says immediately after they arrived in the Gerasenes, which was uh, believed to be in the Decapolis area, they encounter a different type of storm. They encounter a storm that's occurring in a person's heart. They encounter this man who's possessed by a demon that comes before them. Now, you might think to yourself, well, how can a rational person in today's day and age believe in the existence of demons? Well, when we think about demons, demons are not necessarily what we think about when we think about maybe horror movies and and how they're portrayed in the media. But there are spiritual beings that exist to oppose God. And this is evidenced even by psychiatrists, even by uh, people who are professionals, who are researchers. For example, board-certified psychiatrist and professor of clinical psychiatry at New York Medical College, Richard Gallagher, recently wrote this. He said, "...is it possible to be a sophisticated psychiatrist and believe that evil spirits are, however seldom, assailing humans?" Most of my scientific colleagues and friends say no. But careful observation of the evidence presented to me in my career has led me to believe that certain extremely uncommon cases can be explained no other way. So there's demons that exist. You know, It's fairly rare that someone would be possessed by a demon. But there's demons that exist to do the work of the enemy, to oppose God's purposes. And, we, and these disciples encounter such a man. It says in the text that he uh, was crying out. Crying out continually. He was in a terrible predicament. He was cutting himself with stones. Dwelling among the tombs. He was probably a danger to himself and a danger to others. It says in the text that people tried to subdue him, but he would just break the bonds apart, rip the chains apart. He couldn't be controlled. And here's this crazy superhuman being coming to meet Jesus and his disciples. Wonder what his disciples felt like. And not only was he demons possessed, but there was something else going on. And all Jesus' disciples probably felt like they were in the midst of enemy territory. They were in the territory of the Gentiles. That's the the Decapolis with a Gentile area. Gentiles were considered to be unclean. This man was possessed by an unclean spirit. He dwelt in the tombs. Those who uh, came into contact with the body or even entered into a tomb were considered to be unclean. Further, there were pig herders there. Jews didn't eat pigs. They didn't associate with pigs. They didn't herd pigs. They were believed to be unclean. Scholar James Edwards says, says it this way, Jesus meets a man with an unclean spirit living among unclean tombs surrounded by people employed in unclean occupations. All in unclean Gentile territory so jesus is facing a formidable foe who's not only unclean but he's also uncontrollable and jesus asked the demon what's what's your name he says i'm legion a legion was probably around five to six thousand people in the roman army there are many demons inside of this person and that gave him this superhuman strength strength and also this superhuman struggle and so we see this stage that's set for this great battle between Jesus, the King of kings, the Messiah, the Prince of light, and the Prince of darkness. As this man comes before Jesus. But ironically, there isn't a fight. There's no fight. This is in the text that this man just comes and he bows before Jesus. He bows before Jesus. The word in the Greek literally is the same word that's used for Worship. He just comes and bows himself before Jesus. Now, why does he do that? Maybe the demons, you know, thought, you know, recognized the authority of Jesus, and however begrudgingly they felt that they had to submit to Jesus. That's a possibility. Or also, it could be that this man who was possessed by demons looked to Jesus as his only hope for freedom. And so he comes to Jesus to be freed from his affliction. And then Jesus commands the demons to come out of the man. The demon responds and says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And then the demon requests that, he not, that they not be sent out of the country and that they be sent into the pigs. Now why exactly they make this request, we don't really know. Why, why they wanted to go into the pigs, we don't know. But Jesus permits their request and then they go into the pigs and the pigs go into the water, rush down the bank, and go into the water and drown. Again, the full significance of this is unclear, but there's some questions that are raised. For example, does this mean the demons were destroyed? Well, we don't know for sure, but here's an idea. Last week, we looked at the idea of how water is often a symbol of judgment, and we talked about how Jesus is In the water with his in the boat with his disciples, and the waves are coming against him. And how we talked about how what Jesus might be doing instilling that is instilling the waters of judgment that attempted to overtake his people. But here in this passage, he's submitting the enemies of God to God's judgment that they're judged in the water, just like the disciples were saved from judgment. These demons, these enemies of God, are judged in the water. So he. Jesus commands that these demons leave just by the word of His mouth. And in the ancient world, there were a number of exorcists. And exorcists would often uh, recite uh, very complicated incantations and spells in order for a demon to be expelled from somebody. But Jesus doesn't need to do that. He just speaks the word and the demons are expelled. But then there's a moral question that's involved. Jesus sends these demons into the pigs. These weren't wild pigs. They belonged to... These pig herders. The loss of these pigs would have been catastrophic catastrophic to the city and to to a number of families in that city. 2,000 pigs was a great economic cost. Yet Jesus doesn't address that. He doesn't mention it. Mark doesn't give any notes of what Jesus was thinking. There's nothing that's mentioned about why these pigs are taken. No explanation. Now, why doesn't Jesus give any explanation? Why doesn't Mark give any explanation? Well, it could be that Jesus is so concerned about people that money and possessions don't matter. That money and possessions are insignificant compared to what God is doing. If it cost the herders their herd, it was worth it if this man would experience his freedom. I wonder if we have the same mindset. Do we believe that money or our possessions are nothing in comparison to people? Do we believe that it doesn't matter what it costs if we can see somebody come to know Christ, experience freedom? And this man does experience freedom. We see in the text it says that, and they came to Jesus and Jesus uh, to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. The man is sitting there. This man who was uh, troubled by wandering about tombs, who people had tried to bind with chains and fettered, nobody can control him. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's clothed in contrast to his former nakedness. He had nothing to offer materially, nothing to offer spiritually, and yet he's sitting there clothed at the feet of Jesus. The man is in his right mind. The troubled man who is crying out day and night, screaming, cutting himself, is no longer there. And he's composed, sitting at the feet of Jesus. short, this man has been completely transformed by Jesus and the Gospel. Jesus has calmed the storm that's raging inside of him. See, Jesus not only calms the storms outside of us, but He also calms the storms that are inside of us. Last week, we looked at the story of Jesus and His disciples being on the boat. The great storm arose. They're fearing for their life, and Jesus calmed the storm by the word of His power. In this passage, we see that He calms a different kind of storm. The storm in the human heart. This man's completely transformed. This man's completely changed by Jesus. And then we see two different responses to the grace that Jesus shows this man. Two different responses to this transformation. Transformation. First, the man who is healed is sitting at Jesus' feet, likely taking in every word that Jesus has to say. It says in the text that he begged Jesus to go with him, but Jesus refused to allow him to. Probably wanted to be a part of Jesus' inner circle of disciples, but Jesus doesn't allow him. He says, go back to your home. Tell your friends about what the Lord has done for you. Be a witness to the mercy that God has shown you. So he begs Jesus to go with him. On the other hand, the people of the city are begging for a different reason. They're begging Jesus to leave the region. Part of this is simply economic. They feared the loss of their livestock. They feared what would happen if Jesus stayed. But also, they were in the presence of someone who was so powerful, and that was terrifying. They saw Jesus with the demon-possessed man, and it was terrifying to them that this man had been so crazy and so wild so uncontrollable, and now he's composed at the feet of Jesus. So they beg Jesus to leave. This story is such a beautiful story because it's a beautiful picture of how Jesus can free us from the storms that rage inside of us. On the surface, we might read this story and we think to ourselves, you know, I, I don't see where I fit in this story. If I don't have, uh, de- I'm not possessed by demons. I'm not running around the countryside naked. At least, hopefully, we're not. So we might have trouble identifying with the character in the story. But while we might not exactly be like this person, apart from Christ, our lives are marked by storms. Our lives are marked by turmoil, by conflict. Apart from Christ, we tend toward rivalry with others. We have things that we desire, that we want. Physical things like money, a job, possessions, sex, immaterial things like love, prestige, respect. And then we want these things and either we don't get them or when we do get them, we're not satisfied and we have this kind of turmoil inside of our hearts apart from Christ. And it's almost like there's a storm raging inside of our hearts. It's described in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. It says, "...for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Likewise in Romans one twenty eight to thirty one, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God that gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, and inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Great theologian A.W. Tozer once said this, the average person in the world today without faith and without God and without hope is engaged in a desperate personal search throughout his lifetime. He does not really know where he has been. He does not really know what he is doing here and now. He does not know where he's going. The sad commentary is that he is doing it all on borrowed time and borrowed money and borrowed strength. And he always knows that in the end he will surely die apart from Christ our lives are marked with storms by storms if you're here today and you feel like there's a storm that's raging in your heart Jesus can still that storm today he can give you a new hope and a new purpose he can transform you from the inside out and if you've never entered into a relationship with Christ today, I'd love to talk to you about that afterwards about how to enter into a relationship with Christ Jesus can give us freedom today But for those of us who are believers in Jesus, who have accepted Christ, who have been freed, the storm has been still inside of us. We have two choices in how we respond to grace. Two choices in how we respond to the transformation that God does in people's hearts. On the one hand, we can be like the townspeople that begged Jesus to leave. And you think to yourself, well, I would never beg Jesus to leave. I want Jesus' presence in my life. I want Jesus' presence in this church. But I, would, I wonder that many Christians in the church, in the church of America, they, when we say that we want Jesus in our life, we say that we want Jesus in our community, but if Jesus really showed up, would we be happy? Because if Jesus showed up, it might cost us some things. It might change our priorities. See, ministering to those around us, reaching the lost with the gospel—it's costly. It costs us our time, costs us our money. Sometimes it costs us some stress that it causes in our life. And many people in the church in the United States would rather keep Jesus at an arm's d- distance, rather keep him a little separated, so that he doesn't mess with our stuff. And so that's one response to the grace that Jesus shows, begging Jesus to leave. I want him close, but not too close. I don't want him to mess with my stuff. On the other hand, in this passage, we have a man who's changed by the Gospel and he's so overjoyed by his salvation that he goes and declares what God has done to everyone in the city. And it says in the text that everyone marveled at what had happened. This would have been an incredible testimony to the grace of God. Now imagine something for a moment with me. Now imagine Jesus' disciples, they'd seen this great miracle. You know, they, they were out on the boat and the storm comes up. Waves are crashing down. Jesus calms the storm. And then they could go and tell everybody, look at what Jesus did. He calmed the storm. But nobody had else had experienced that. That was individual. It was only for them. I mean, some of them might say, oh, that's cool. I want to know a little bit more. But when they saw a miracle before their eyes, when they saw a person who was running around the countryside screaming, cutting himself, running around naked, tearing uh, chains from his arms, they saw the miracle before their eyes. They saw the gospel in their midst. As believers, we're not just to tell people the gospel. We're not simply to tell the good news that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We need to do that. We need to talk, tell people that Jesus died, He rose again. But we need to also show them the miracle before their eyes. We need to allow them to see the miracle that God has done in our hearts. Our mission as the church is to live and to tell the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just about telling it. It's also about living it. Showing the world the miracle of what Christ has done in our hearts. That once we were lost and now we've been found. Ravi Zacharias, a famous apologist, talks about some uh, people who were changed by the witness of other believers who were transformed by the Gospel. One was named A.N. Wilson who was known for his scathing attacks on Christianity. But just a few years ago, he became a believer in Christ. He said this, My own return to faith has surprised none more than myself. My belief has come about in large measure because of the lives and examples of people I have known. Not the famous, not saints, but friends and relations who have lived and faced death in light of the resurrection story, or in the quiet acceptance that they have a future after they die. Matthew Paris, a British atheist who visited Malawi in 2008, wrote this. He wrote an article that was entitled, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. He said, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. I used to avoid this truth, but but Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write. And only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school and say the world would be better without it. The testimony of a changed life is the most powerful testimony that we can give the world that we can show the miracle, show the miracle that Christ has done in our hearts to the world. Jesus not only calms the storms outside of us, but he also calms the storms inside of us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you speak and the storms are stilled, that not only do you calm the storms in our lives that we face, but also you calm the storms inside of our hearts that you've given us a new hope, a new purpose, a new reason for living, that you've forgiven our sins, and that you've transformed us from the inside out. God, I pray that we would be people who respond to grace like the man in this story, that we would be so overjoyed by what you've done for us that we want to go and share it with everybody, that they would see the miracle of what you've done in our hearts, and that they would want to come to know you too. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.